the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back. Friday, March 1st, 2024. I am Seth Liebson. Mr. Bill, good to see you. David Dahl, young David, good to see you. Is Miss Teresa still here? Yes, she is. Into She's all here somewhere. The- She's somewhere. 602 It's been on my mind. There's probably no more important index of a nation's health than how it treats its children. Does it value them? Does it protect them, nurture them, care about them? Or does it use and abuse them? dispense with them, ignore them, take them for granted? Does it use warriors to protect them, or does it make warriors of them? The image of one extreme was the besiege movement in the Iran-Iraq war, where thousands of children were used as minesweepers in the field of battle, put in front of soldiers and tanks, but at least they had little plastic gold-colored keys around their necks so as to open the gates of paradise when they were sent there. Recently, much of the world was given the lesson of how abuses of children have taken place with training the young to be haters and warriors in Gaza and the West Bank, with not just instruction manuals and textbooks teaching the most vile lies about Jews and Christians, but with plastic suicide vests and ammunition belts as aspirational costumes. You've got to be carefully taught to hate, Rogers and Hammerstein wrote when the young ones are five or six or seven or eight. Here in America, we aren't there yet, but our society is fast moving in a direction of nurture to abuse. John Hinderocker cross-posted something Barry Weiss wrote recently, and it's important, as we can either continue the slide or find some ladders and start climbing back up with our kids, starting, I'm afraid to say, with some of the lower rungs just now. American kids are the freest, most privileged kids in all of history, Barry wrote. They are also the saddest, the most anxious, depressed, and medicated generation on record. Nearly a third of teen girls say they have seriously considered suicide. Think about that. A third of teenage girls have seriously considered suicide. For boys, the number is an alarming 14%. What's even stranger is that all of these worsening mental health outcomes for kids have coincided with a generation of parents hyperfixated on the mental health and well-being of their children. Take, for example, the biggest parenting trend today, gentle parenting. Parents today are told to understand their kids' feelings instead of punishing them when they act out. This emphasis on the importance of feelings is not just a parenting trend. It's become an educational tool as well. Social-emotional learning has become a pillar in public schools across America from kindergarten to high school. And maybe most significantly, therapy for children has been normalized. In fact, there are more kids in therapy today than ever before. How healthy is a society that has that going on? On the surface, all of these parenting and educational developments seem positive. We are told that parents and educators today are more understanding, more accepting, more empathetic, and more compassionate than ever before, which in turn makes wonderful children. But is that really the case? 
are all of these changes, the cultural rethink, the advent of therapy culture, of gentle parenting, of teaching kids about social-emotional learning, actually making our kids better? No. They are doing much worse. And it includes social-emotional learning, which has been corrupted to Orwellian degrees. Where was the care of social and emotional learning or any kind of learning, for example, during COVID? Where was social and emotional learning during COVID? During those dread years, years we are still paying for, we put the fear of the devil into the children over COVID, first by yanking them out of school and all their school and after-school programs, including athletics and religious exercises, any group activity. Then we masked them. Not only did we instill in them fear, as if mandating they all watch the Joker, Alien, and The Exorcist, we divided them against each other and began shaming them from race, of course, to COVID, and now more so to gender. When people ask me what the greatest crisis our society faces is and what is the most important political social change our society could or should be, if I could do one thing to fix society with a magic wand, they ask me this. What would it be? What would be the one thing you could do to fix society if you had a magic wand? And sometimes they think my answer is not serious, but it is. My answer, the crisis is children's literature. Bear with me, but as you do, think of the books you had as a young child and look at what kids are being given now. I'm fascinated by how they learn via literature, children, how they learn stories and folk tales, for they are important. The modern landmark, mark, the modern landmark work on teaching children tales was done by psychiatrist Bruno Bettelheim in his 1976 classic, The Uses of Enchantment. He writes, quote, an understanding of the meaning of life is not suddenly acquired at the age of chronological maturity or at any particular age. The achievement is the result of a long development. Wisdom is built up small step by small step. Unfortunately, too many parents want their children's minds to function as their own do, as if a child's understanding of himself and the world did not have to develop as slowly as the body does. The child must therefore be helped to bring order into the turmoil of his feelings. He needs a moral education that subtly, by implication only, conveys to him conveys to him the advantages of moral behavior through that which seems tangibly right and therefore has meaning for him. Dr. Benelheim would go on to write, For a story to truly hold the child's attention, it must entertain him and arouse his curiosity. But to enrich his life, it must stimulate his imagination, help him to develop his intellect and to clarify his emotions. Be attuned to his anxieties, his aspirations. Give full recognition to his difficulties, while at the same time suggesting solutions to the problems which perturb him. In short, it must at one and the same time relate to all aspects of his personality, and this without ever belittling, but on the contrary giving full credence to the seriousness of the child's predicaments, while simultaneously promoting confidence in himself and in his future. In all these and many other respects of the entire children's literature, with rare exceptions, nothing can be as enriching and satisfying to child and adult alike as the folk fairy tale. True, on an overt level, fairy tales teach little about the specific conditions of life in modern mass society. These tales were created long before it came into being. 
but more can be learned from them about their inner problems of human beings and of the right solutions to their predicaments in any society, more from them than from any other type of story within a child's comprehension. Since the child at every moment of his life is exposed to the society in which he lives, he will certainly learn to cope with its conditions, provided his inner resources permit him to do so. The point of a good children's story is to help the child cope later in life as he develops in life. We have forgotten that. The left has not. We have. Bettelheim uh, wrote, unlike many modern stories for children, fairy tales present evil as being no less omnipresent than virtue. It is this duality that poses the moral problem and requires the struggle to solve it. For children, characters, unlike adults in real life, are not necessarily good or bad. They, are, they aren't necessarily good and bad, rather. They are good or bad. Because polarization dominates a child's mind and requires such instruction for recognizing those very correct characteristics of life when they do unfold, and which to choose which way to go. You know thus from an even older source, the wisest of all men, we are told, wrote, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. I think this is important, for you can confuse children or you can educate them in the mind as well as in the morals. Teddy Roosevelt put it that to educate a man in the mind and not the morals is to educate a menace to society. You can surrender to children's feelings and tantrums and anxieties. You can even give them anxieties as we have. You can surrender to them or you can nurture and nurse and direct the child's emotions. And while the New York Times thinks it's just fine, the moment a four or five-year-old wants to change their sex because they feel uncomfortable or are taught to feel uncomfortable, the wiser thinking is that it is imperative that children do, in fact, experience a little bit of discomfort. Doctors Heather Hang and Brett Weinstein write that it is a mistake to capitulate to children's transient feelings and tantrums to give in to every immediate women desire. There used to be a word for that, capitulation or surrender. It was called spoil. We spoke of surrender. We speak about it a lot in discussing the war against children that the progressive education movement began in earnest in the 1940s and 1950s. Hannah Arendt put it that there are certain forms of surrender adults may not declare in the presence of children. Well, the white flag is flying pretty high right now and are going to need a metaphysical Iwo Jima of a hoisting a better flag rather quickly if we plan to recapture both adulthood and childhood. We have a special guest in studio, don't we, young David? Yep. Carrie Lake will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. It is a delight to welcome in studio Carrie Lake, candidate for U.S. Senate. You can learn more about her, of course, by going to her website, carrielake.com. Help her out. We had a great time yesterday with Senator John Barrasso in town doing some work with you and on the hustings, yeah? Yes, that was great. I mean, t- the energy yeah. <laughs> he gave to us yesterday. I know. He flew know. in, we yeah. got him busy, and we literally, uh, right until the minute he flew out, we, we were doing events. So yeah. we had a great time. And I think a lot of people getting to know him a little better in Arizona who maybe had heard of him, but they didn't know much about him. Um, really smart guy. He's uh, a, very much America first. Yeah. But he also reaches all Republicans, and that's kind of what it's about, pulling our Republican Party together. Of course, you know, he comes in the day after we hear the announcement that 
um, our leader in, yeah. the, in the Republican Party in the Senate, Mc, Mitch McConnell, yeah. is going to be um, stepping down yeah. in November. Yeah. So all the questions were, oh, is it going to be you? And I just, it could be <laughs> him. He could be the next majority leader. He's That's top right. three right now. He's the third. He's the head of the Republican conference. He's yep. been there about 17 years. But he was very humble about the whole thing, wasn't he? Yes, he was. He said the most important election is the November election. That will come later in November, but we got to win the November election. We got to first make sure we can get this majority in the Senate, and we want to be electing a Senate majority leader, not a minority leader. And he, like you, was making the case that that majority runs through Arizona. This is the most important Senate race in the country. That's why people like him, like him, like he was here yesterday. That's right. right. Yeah. And he wants everybody to recognize what's at stake in this election. This isn't just a, okay, Things could get a little bit better. They could get a little worse. They, things are either going to get a lot better and we're going to return to some common sense policies or we're going off a cliff. I mean, I, I, I know it sounds dramatic, but I'm sounding the alarm. We've got just months left, I believe, to save this republic because the direction that the Democrats are dragging this country is, uh, is total destruction. You, you and I are singing off the same sheet of music or the same page. I've been saying this for a while. I, I think of a phrase at the point of no return, how much gas is left in this tank. America can be very resilient and, you know, um, we have a tremendous capacity for self-renewal. But in 1960, I mean, when I'm talking to fellow Republicans and stuff and some people, you know, kind of think about – in the Republican Party, you know, I don't know if I'm going to sit this one out. I don't know if I want to get involved in the primary. I don't know if that Republican is my taste exactly or what have you. You know, when Barry Goldwater in 1960 didn't get the nomination, he said, let's grow up Republicans because the alternative is a blueprint for socialism. That was a blueprint. That was 1960. Well, a blueprint is a draft, is a plan, as you know. It's active now. I mean, and I don't know after November if we don't elect a Republican majority if we do have enough gas left in the tank. I worry about that myself. I mean, I'm not the only one who wakes up in the middle of the night, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, and wonders, okay, how can, what's going to come at us today? And can we, uh, can we just keep afloat long enough to nope. get to this election? Right. So we're working really hard. Sure. You know, I'm sitting with people, Seth, um, that maybe were supportive of me and weren't supportive of me. I want to get in front of all Arizonans. I mean, the Senate... The senator is a senator for all Arizonans, from north to south, east to west, a blue to red. doesn't matter. Whoever wins this, I believe it will be me, will be the senator for all the people of Arizona. And I believe we have the best plans that will help all people. When you put America First policies in the same ones we saw when we had President Trump in office and love him or hate him, if you look back five years ago, your life was, was you were doing better. Mm-hmm. I think, well, there's a few people who maybe weren't who are doing better under Joe Biden. The um, cartels, the human smugglers, the drug dealers, drug traffickers, they're right. probably doing a lot better right yeah. now. The rest of us are struggling. And even people who were like, wow, I really thought we were, were doing be- good. We're middle, middle of the road. We were middle class, maybe a little bit upper middle class. They're feeling like they're slipping down. Yep. And so we need to get these policies put back in place. I know we can do it quickly. President Trump knows how to do it, and I think he's really, really ready to get in there and start. It's going to be a whiplash. We're going to get things going so quickly, get the economy moving again. He knows how to do it, but he's got to have that majority in the Senate. We we know that Ruben Gallego is, is a problem. I call him a... A, a Biden mini-me because he's got those same policies. He votes for him 100 percent of the time. And he wants to give everybody pouring across our border voting rights yeah. and amnesty. And, uh, you know, he's not for building the wall. He wants to pour more money at the. He says, I want to support the border deal. 
the border deal was about pouring money into the symptoms without touching the problem, which is we have an invasion. You and John Barassa were making this point yesterday that the border thing is doesn't need to be that complicated. I think he was saying there's just like three things we need to do. I don't even know if we need to do three. How about just enforcing the law that's there now, to be quite honest Absolutely. with you? Title Eight. There's a lot of uh, that's a, yeah, yeah. It seems to me pretty and, good. And allow um, you know allow local uh, authorities to help out. You know the sheriff's departments. Uh, allow the local police departments to help out. It's going to take a lot of law enforcement help to get this because so many people have poured in. He said nine million. I've heard up to twelve million or more. I don't know how much I trust the government's numbers on this. Oh. Every day we see the pictures from the border. We see. The crime that is now affecting families, beautiful Lake and Riley. She's yeah. about my daughter's age, looks a lot like my daughter, yeah. and her family is mourning that loss of the beautiful bright light that she was is now gone. Yeah. And it's, it's tragic. That's one of thousands of cases that are similar of, of uh, violence, of rape, of murder, the fentanyl, which is killing people. And frankly, we're looking at it right here in the Valley. I know several people who've been robbed by these uh, gangs of bandits, professional bandits, yeah breaking into homes it's not this problem isn't just at the border no. it's in our neighborhoods so breaking it's in our, our neighborhoods it's in it's on our streets it's in our freeways it's the hit and runs yep with the illegals who don't uh, who who won't stick around and stay for the you know and stay for the stay for the for the police to the exchange uh, of, yeah the exchange of insurance, of insurance yeah cuz they don't even have a driver's license the yeah. economy the cost not only the suppressed wages but the cost in healthcare the cost in education we're talking at the end of the day, not tens of billions of dollars. We're talking hundreds of billions of dollars. Yeah, I believe that for sure. And and that only grows bigger yeah. as the problem grows, continues along. Of course. You know, and President Trump talking about it, and I agree, and I, I even looked at some polling on it recently. The vast majority of Americans, uh, almost all of Republicans, the vast majority of independents, yep. and, and about more than half of Democrats say the people who've poured in under the Biden invasion, we've got to repatriate them back to their country. We can't absorb this uh, this invasion. No, we can't. It's part of the tipping point or the point of no return as well, if uh, unless it's stopped. Um, and there, w- there was such an interesting duality of visits to the border yesterday between Biden and, and Donald Trump, President Biden and President Donald Trump. Joe Biden goes to where the problem really isn't, McAllen, and gives a speech on global warming. Um, that's the level of seriousness this administration is giving it. Mm. Donald Trump went and looked at the People across the board. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I heard some of them uh, chanting yeah, Trump. Yeah. <laughs> he, <laughs> even they want him. You know, at the end they of the like day. him, but they're not going to like his policy because his policy means you're staying over there. You're not coming in. Yeah. Um, and I, I thought it was uh, just the visuals of it. You know, Joe Biden was like shuffling. It was awful. And the border patrol awful. agents, the, the poor border patrol agents who had to walk with him. You could tell. You know, have you ever walked with like an elderly we person who was having trouble? It was. They were slowing down because he couldn't move very quickly, and um, he's he's caused this problem. Yes, of course. So, I, you know, I, we can talk about it until we're blue in the face, but what we have to do is get some action. Uh, you free to stay a little bit longer? Sure. Carrie Lake in studio. Delighted to have her. She and I will be right back. 
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Delighted to have Carrie Lake in studio with us, candidate for U.S. Senate. Go to her website, CarrieLake.com. Help her out. She's working so hard. I saw some of it firsthand yesterday. I knew you were here. I didn't know if you were going to call in or come in. I knew you came here, Carrie, because I saw this mass exodus of all the staff here, like the parting of the Red Sea going to say hi to you. You had, uh, I'm sure, some of that yesterday with Dr. John Barrasso, Senator Barrasso, when you went to uh, the baseball game, huh? Yeah, we decided to take him to one of our truly points of pride, yeah. spring training. It's yeah. an economic uh, boom for for Arizona. It's yeah. one of our biggest uh, draws when it comes to tourism. Yeah. And we you know we can do meetings and we can do roundtables and we can do fundraisers. But I said, let's take him and show him this because it's so great. So we had a great time. We did pretty much a loop around the whole ballpark. It was the uh, D-backs versus the Giants. Yeah. And you know, I'm so blessed that I have a relationship with the people of Arizona, so they come up and talk to me, and, and he got right in there and was telling them they got to go get 10 people to vote for Kerry Lake, yeah. make sure you're registered to vote. But at the very end of it, we got to the other side of the park. We were just exiting, and a group of about five or seven people said, Senator. And they recognized <laughs> they <met> him. <laughs> him. They were in town, tourists from Wyoming, yeah. and uh, turns out he knew, like, knew one of their dads or uncles, and... And it was really great to That's see him. That's fun. Did you get a hot dog or a beer or something? I had a beer and a hot dog. Uh, a little of both. So did he. <laughs> and both, not either or. He's such a good guy in his coming out. I'm, I knew him when he first got elected in 07. But he has stood for seriousness and sobriety and strong conservative principles. It's fabulous that he came out for you. You're racking up a lot of endorsements from senators, your future colleagues. Tom Cotton is behind you. I think you just uh, recently announced perhaps even John Cornyn out of Texas. Of yeah. course, Ted Cruz. You've yeah. got the whole Texas delegation. Well, now. Ted Cruz, I'm still waiting for. Oh, are we waiting on Ted? You'll get <laughs> he, Ted. No, he did tell me he's going to endorse me. Yeah, but um, you know, he's working on a committee where he works closely with uh, Kirsten Sinema, and oh, okay. they're working on some important legislation that's important for America. And so I think he wants to make sure he doesn't ruffle too many feathers. But I'm confident we'll get his yeah, endorsement. Uh, Joni Ernst, I grew up in Iowa, and yeah. she's the Iowa senator. Yeah. And uh, we've got some big ones coming next week as well. I'm, what I'm really trying to do is, you know, so many things are, are said about me and written about me. I wish the media were more fair. I yeah. know President Trump feels that way. They just aren't, and that's the way it is. And I wanted to get to D.C. and let the, the senators know, hey, listen, you haven't met me, but you probably read a lot about me, which isn't true. And so I want to introduce myself. I got in front of as many as I could, okay. got one-on-one meetings, 10 minutes, an hour, whenever they could give me, to just talk about why I'm running and that I want to come and work with them in D.C. to make a difference for the people of Arizona and this country. And when we get the majority, the people of this country are going to expect some action. Now, no, you can't blame anybody. It can't, if we have the majority, we can't blame anybody. So we're going to have to get in there and work together and make some big, big changes to turn things around. And and that's why I was on it. I, I was thrilled to have Senator uh, Cornyn's endorsement yeah. yesterday. Yeah. He said, "I don't know, it might be do more harm than good." You know, because no, sometimes no, no, no. when you're doing big things, you get you yeah. get uh, brought down a lot. And uh, I said, "I want every endorsement from the Senate." Everyone has different constituents. They have to uh, you know, make sure that they're working for their constituents. And at the end of the day, we are looking for the majority in the Senate. I don't want to get there and have three factions of Republicans who can't work together. So I want to work with John Cornyn. I want to work with Ted Cruz, Mike Lee. Uh, J.D. Vance got his endorsement, too. I'm excited about that. No, as Lincoln said, it's all our territory, you know? No, leave no. I get calls like this. You must be asked this. It'd be interesting because when John Barras says get 10 people to vote for, I love that sentiment. Um, I kind of think of that great mantra from the – that line from the civil rights movement, each, each one, teach one, reach one. 
you know, some of this is one at a time. You got to find a friend who might be on the fence, who's open to it, and you got to spend some time with them. That's what I tell people. That's how we're going to win this. Everyone has to be an evangelist in business. They say always be closing, always be evangelizing for the party because it's really not about the party. As we were saying, it's about the country. Yeah, Yeah. truly. Right now, more than ever. I mean, it's very clear. Before you could say, well, we're we're doing this for the country as a Republican. Now it truly is about the survival of our country. So, And we have a great story to tell. As I was uh, at the NRSC meeting in Florida a couple weeks ago, I was watching a a panel of senators, and each of them had a strength that they brought. And and they were wonderful, whatever their business background was, whatever committee they sit on. And I thought, wow, what we really need is a great communicator to communicate the incredible story of the Republican Party today. Because this is, I believe, the party of Lincoln, like I said, is going to save this country once again. You bet. Keep us the last best hope of earth. We can go uh, up or down. It's not about left or right anymore. It's about up or down. Carrie Lake, thanks for coming in. CarrieLake.com is the website. Help this woman out. She is working really hard for all of us. I'll be right back. Little mic in the mechanics for you. Okay, now my mic's on. Is it on now? Yeah. We got it on? Welcome it's on. back. Okay, 602 Whether or not we're on air is another question. Yeah, we entirely. had that problem we yesterday. Problem yesterday. I, not, I'm not paranoid if, it, if the... Uh, <laughs> uh, our friend Steve was happy to see that we not only had Carrie Lake, but we were playing Bob Dylan music. So um, I don't know if that was deliberate or not, but uh, we're, we're here to please. We're here we to are please. here to please. It was funny when she came in. Did you you saw what I said? You couldn't leave because you were working. Everyone just Stuck starts walking. Oh, Carrie Lake's here. Carrie Lake's here. Carrie Lake's here. I guess she is coming in studio. It's great to have her. All right, Rob is in surprise. Hello, Rob. Hi, Seth. Happy Friday. To, Happy uh, Friday you. to you. And I'm a big Carrie Lake supporter, as you probably well know. Um, yesterday, well, of course I am. Um, yesterday, you mentioned Van McCoy. Interesting. He and his soul symphony uh, played at the uh, U.S. Naval Academy ring dance when I was a second-class or junior midshipman. Is that right? So that was that was like our version of prom, I guess, at yeah. the Naval Academy band. Yeah, Dan yeah. McCoy. Um, he, I think that was his well, only song that he wrote. He produced a ton of music for others. Am I wrong about that? Or the only song he had that was a hit anyway? Boy, it was a big one, though. He, Did he have those? Well, yeah, that that was the big one for his big group, but actually, in 1965, he had written a song called "Baby I'm Yours" okay. by Barbara Lewis. Okay. Um, I don't know if you remember that song. I don't think it was so. Very, uh, I don't think so. very sultry. Baby, I'm yours. Okay. Baby, I'm right. yours. Right. Anyway, yeah. uh, the reason Barbara Lewis song. got that recorded contract, Rob. Yep. <laughs> okay. I think uh, he was pro- probably responsible. Um, he had also written for Peaches and Herb and a couple of the Detroit oh, okay. Motown bands, but um, a lot of production. Sadly, he passed away at age 39 from a heart attack, of all things. Yeah. And 1979, I think, he was only 39 years old. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's always sad, gone before his time. Yeah, and, there's a uh, lot of them out there like that. We were talking about Keith Whitley <laughs> the other day. I think he made it to 32 or 3. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The uh, the second thing, Mrs. Rob was talking to me yesterday about, uh, and I don't know if it was California or someplace else, but uh, parents are sending some of their children to kindergarten who are not potty trained and who are wearing diapers. And I'm thinking, well, first of all, it's gross because the expectation, I guess, is that 
the kindergarten teacher uh, change their soiled diaper uh, because the parents are uh, I don't, unwilling I, is to. Is that even appropriate? Is that even legal? Uh, I don't. I honestly don't know. This sounds like something in California to okay, me. Okay. But but I find that just disgusting. But it does show uh, a definite lack of parenting. I mean, I think most of us get potty trained by the time we're three years old, and yeah. it's kind of a big thing. Yeah. You know, I, th- I think, you know, if if you maybe can't tie your shoe yet, you know, I could live with something like that. Yeah. But you usually end up learning how to tie your shoes. Velcro changed time. some of that, didn't it? Velcro. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, Velcro. You know, that's, okay. Yeah. And hush puppies and, you know, what have you. Um, that, uh, but it just, it grossed me out. Yeah. I just can't imagine anybody uh, wanting to uh, be a kindergarten teacher and have to put up with that. I would just send the kid home and say, uh, sorry, you can't stay here because the the stench uh, would be unbelievable. And the, just the idea that a parent would want somebody, uh, one of their kids, to go to school with not only a diaper, which they should have been long out of by then, but also uh, obviously a soiled diaper uh, and expecting the teacher to change it. It's, it's just real you. <laughs> That's just so bad. Yeah. The other, the only other thing, um, again, as I'm going through, I'm still only about halfway through with the new birth of freedom by Harry Jaffa. It's but it's, wor- it's worth it's worth taking I'm, time on. Oh, it is, and uh, I'm I'm uh, uh, at the point. You know, we had talked a couple weeks ago, I think, about you know slavery being the, the primary source of the Civil War. I'm finally to the point where. He's at his first inaugural. Let me uh, let me take a commercial break and we'll pick up on it. Okay. Do I have okay. time? No. Yeah. How much? Wait, I lost yeah. my clock. How much time? Hey, do I have? you got oh. about three minutes. Oh, we're good. We're good. Keep going. Keep oh, going, okay. Right. We're good. Yeah. He he. Um. You know he when he did his first inaugural at that point, March of 1861, it was only South uh, Carolina that had actually seceded from the Union, and his speech and what i'm reading so far is leads me to indicate that his his highest priority was preserving the union and i think he would and i i've read things where that was even a higher priority than you know ending slavery was the preservation of the union he and thought that the preservation of the union would end slavery Right. Yeah, it's 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 uh, an alpha beta situation. He thought that the yeah. Constitution would put slavery, the adherence to the Constitution would put slavery on its course of ultimate extinction. And he didn't think right. that he had the constitutional power to just abolish slavery. This was why he wasn't um, wasn't an abolitionist. No one could fairly call him right. an abolitionist. Yeah, go ahead. Right. Well, no, it's just uh, the the ones who seceded uh, misread the U.S. Constitution in the sense that, uh, you know, if you have a tyrannical government, you can abolish it and set up a new government. But there was no nothing said uh, or even implied in the U.S. Constitution about secession, which was, you know, one of the problems that I think Lincoln had. But, you know, his his main goal, I think, was the preservation of the Union, and he had talked to Jefferson Davis and Alexander Stevens, who were the, you know, to be the president and vice president of the Confederacy, 
about all of that, as well as him, you know, talking to Robert E. Lee about, well, if, if we're going to fight, uh, I'd sure like to have you on my side. But um, the book, again, I can't recommend it enough for good, solid American history, well-researched, uh, very well-written. No, he's and, my guy. He's my guy. He's the yeah. best teacher of American political science there ever will be. And the book is what? now how much time, David? I think I hit the break. A minute and a half. Yeah, I know. He's the best there ever will be. Uh, he started off, interestingly enough, he was a literature major at Yale. That was his degree was in literature. And then he went on to get a Ph.D. with Leo Strauss. He was an Aristotle scholar, became an Aristotle scholar, wrote mostly his, disserta- his dissertation was on Aristotle, and uh, was walking down a bookstore one day and stumbled on an old copy of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And he saw within the Lincoln-Douglas debates the entire argument, um, the entire argument that Aristotle was making about what makes for the best regime. And uh, that became his career. He wrote uh, the most probably important book on Lincoln and Douglas, uh, The Crisis of the House Divided. And this book you're talking about, A New Birth of Freedom, is its follow-up. I actually think it's a better book. All right. Now I got my clock back in my break. Have a great, great weekend, Rob. I'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show, brought to you in part by our friends at Y-Refi. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or give them a call at 888-YREFI-24. What they offer is an investment in a secure and collateralized portfolio where you can have total peace of mind. There's no attack on principle if you ever need your money back. You get a monthly statement with no surprises. There are absolutely no fees, and you can turn your income on or off or compound it or whatever you like. But best of all, with Y-Refi, you can earn up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return, and it's not correlated to the stock market or the Federal Reserve. You can also visit with the folks at Y-Refi. Their offices are locally based here on Chauncey Lane in North Phoenix. They won't ask you to sign a thing. You won't get a sales pitch. They leave it to me. They leave that to me. So if you don't go visit them, do check them out at investyrefi.com. That's investyrefi.com. Do we have time for a quick call, Dan? Maybe? In Chandler. Hi, Dan. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having Carrie Lake on. I have a question uh, regarding her. Yes. Uh, which is, why is there not one journalist on the trail of whoever... Uh, co- tried to collude with Jeff DeWitt to bribe her not to run. Uh, journalists should be salivating over that story, and instead they're either ignoring it or bizarrely implying that somehow she did something wrong. You know, it's such a great question. It should have been national press racing to get to the bottom of that story. You're absolutely right. You know, the press is so incredible against Republicans. It's amazing we ever win anything. But maybe it's in part because less and less people are paying attention to it. I I have had experience with it. There is a major paper that uh, you would know that I submitted an op-ed to uh, on behalf of Carrie, not on behalf of Carrie Lake, but arguing, you know, why I was supporting Carrie Lake, because I didn't initially support her in the primaries last time around. And they turned it down under their policy that they don't allow uh, op-eds related to candidacies uh, uh, or or general rebukes to other office holders. And yet that paper itself, their own editorial writers and op-ed writers, probably have an anti-Carrie Lake piece three times a week. 
So they won't take one from an outsider as it re- because it violates their policy. But the people who work there can write screed after screed after screed uh, without with without restraint. It's it's a standard that um, just means we all have to work harder. I mean, I don't know what to do about it except work harder. You know, each one, reach one, teach one. Find someone who's got an open mind. Spend some time with them. If they stump you, call me, write me. I'll help you out. But that's what we got to do. We all got to work harder. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.